Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker. And today we have episode 278 for June 27th, 2022. A couple quick uh, programming notes before I get into the list of news stories for the day. First of all, just as a reminder, I'm trying out putting a table of contents in the show notes. And that table of contents will have kind of a, a list of the major chapters or areas in the news stories and in the interviews. Uh, with timestamps, so that if you have the capability to scrub through the audio, you can pick a particular spot that you want to go to or go back to. Uh, so I'm, I'm giving that a shot. Again, chapter markers really aren't well supported uh, and technologically. A lot of players don't support them. Even my recording setup doesn't support generating them. So uh, if that ever standardizes and gets better, I will do it that way. But in the meantime, I can at least provide uh, a list of you know the general chapter headers uh, with text labels and timestamps so that you can jump to them that way. So give it a shot and, you know, give me some feedback. You can always send feedback to uh, feedback at firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com uh, and let me know if that's a feature that you like or if you have any uh, suggestions for how I might make that better. Also, just as a random thing, I'm, I'm thinking about changing the drop time for my podcasts from first thing Monday morning to last thing Sunday night, uh, which are effectively probably the same thing for a lot of people. But there have been times when this is so weird. I mean, okay, so I, I'm a podcast guy and I've been doing this for a long time now. But nevertheless, it'll hit me like I'll wake up in the middle of the night on Sunday and think, wait, did I did I do that one thing on the show? Did I, did I forget to link into the, the MP3 file correctly? And like literally sometimes it'll bug me so much. I'll get up out of bed in the middle of the night and go check it. And every once in a while, uh, I will actually catch something. But I'd much rather do that before I go to bed. So anyway, I'm thinking about uh, having it come out on 11 p.m. Sunday. That's what my newsletter and blog post as well. So it would kind of synchronize everything. Uh, so anyway, I, I may be doing that. And if all of a sudden you notice it coming out a little bit sooner, and depending on your time zone, you know, it could be nine hours uh, sooner than usual. Uh, that, that'll be why. All right, so we got a new show for you today, and I got several topics to cover. I'm going to talk about a poor Japanese city worker who lost a USB device that had like half a million people's account information on it. There was a leak about TikTok basically saying that despite this repatriation of user data to the United States, TikTok employees in China still had full access to you know everybody's data. I'm going to tell you about a voicemail scam trying to steal your Microsoft credentials, the company Mega has recently been found to have several critical flaws that have been fixed that would have allowed uh, decryption of user data, particularly potentially by a rogue employee. And another report uh, about a system of flaws that they're uh, calling Icefall, and I don't, I don't know why they called it that. But basically, uh, it's a bunch of vulnerabilities in industrial devices that could expose public utilities and things like that. Google Password Manager is now offering on-device encryption. Uh, which I don't know why they hadn't done that already, but I'll I'll tell you what that's about and how you can make sure to turn that on. Microsoft confused a lot of people by offering their free antivirus product that comes with Windows and the rollout of this new feature that allows it to be run on non-Windows devices made it sound like they're going to start charging for it. And uh, that was some confusion. I'll clear that up. Another mobile service provider has been caught selling your data. And of course, I say caught, but I mean, it's not illegal. So, so... Uh, we turned that down uh, several years ago when we could have stopped it and explicitly did not stop it. So the fact that they're doing it is actually not illegal. It's just skeevy. Google is warning about some new spyware that is targeting both iOS and Android users. Facebook is receiving sensitive medical data from hospital websites. And then I've got kind of a 
double bonus tip of the week. Uh, one was from an article from USA Today that tells you how to spot hidden surveillance cameras in your Airbnb and other vacation rentals, which is as creepy as it sounds. And then I've got my tip of the week, which also, as usual, corresponds to my blog and newsletter entries about a new feature from Firefox called Total Cookie Protection. But I titled it Total Cookie Protection with a question mark because it turns out I don't think it was actually working. So I'll, I'll tell you about that. So plenty to talk about. Let's get to the news. All right, first up, this is from The Guardian, this, <laughs> and this poor guy, it, it'll never live this down. Uh, it's about a Japanese worker who apparently got drunk and left a bag containing some serious information. Unfortunately, that information was protected, but let me read the article, and then I'll, I'll opine a little bit more. A city in Japan has been forced to apologize after a contractor admitted he had lost a USB memory stick containing the personal data of almost half a million residents after an alcohol-fueled night out. Officials in Amagasaki, uh, Western Japan, said the man, an unnamed employee, thank goodness, of a private contractor hired to oversee COVID-19 relief payments to local households, had taken the flash drive from the city's offices to transfer the data at a, uh, at a call center in nearby Osaka. After spending Tuesday evening drinking at a restaurant, he realized on his way home that the bag containing the drive was missing, along with the personal details of all 4,600,000 Amagasaki residents. He reported the loss to police the following morning. The information included the residents' names, addresses and dates of birth, as well as details of their residents' tax payments and the bank account numbers on those receiving child benefits and other welfare payments, according to Asahi Shimbun. All the information is encrypted and password protected, and there have been no reports of data leaks. And this is a quote from one of the um, Amagasaki uh, officials who said, they say, quote, we deeply regret that we have profoundly harmed the public's trust in the administration of the city, unquote. The city said in a statement that it would, quote, ensure security management when handling electronic data. We will work to regain our residents' trust by heightening awareness of the importance of protecting personal information, unquote. The Amagasaki incident raises concerns about the continued use of outmoded technology by some Japanese entities. Last week, media reports said dozens of firms and public bodies were racing to migrate from Internet Explorer before Microsoft retired the browser at midnight last Wednesday. A sense of panic had gripped businesses and government agencies that were slow to end their reliance on IE before Microsoft officially halted support services, leaving remaining users vulnerable to bugs and hacking. So I... I thought this article was interesting for two reasons, and that last part was one of them. And this is my way of tangentially mentioning that Internet Explorer, the infamous web browser from Microsoft that they forced you to take many years ago and got in deep trouble for doing so, has finally been put to bed and out to pasture, and it is no longer supported. I mean, they're not going to delete it from your system. Well, maybe they will. But right now, basically, it just becomes completely unsupported. And if you're for some reason still using Internet Explorer, please quit and don't go to Edge. Don't go, don't go to Microsoft Edge. Uh, go to something like Firefox or Brave. But anyway, back to the article. Yeah, I mean, if, if you're going to be carrying around data, I mean, at least it was encrypted. But nevertheless, you know, we've seen people make mistakes with encryption. We're going to have an article today about uh, mistakes made in encryption. And if that data does get loose, there's a lot of really personal information that was on there that could lead to harm. So you got to be more careful with your data, especially when <laughs> When you take it out with you drinking. All right, next up from Gizmodo, and this is about TikTok. 
TikTok's user data drama is back. On Friday, Chinese-owned TikTok announced it completed the migration of its American user data to Oracle-owned U.S.-based servers, ostensibly bringing to close a years-long national security debate about th- between the company and the U.S. government. We say ostensibly because the announcement came within hours of a new report citing leaked audio from TikTok meetings that allegedly confirms U.S. user data has repeatedly been accessed from China. Those claims came by way of a Friday BuzzFeed news report that cites leaked audio from more than 80 internal China-based TikTok meetings. Specifically, BuzzFeed claims the recordings include 14 statements from nine employees who admit engineers had access to U.S. data for five months between September 2021 and January of 2022. While TikTok executives previously assured U.S. lawmakers an American security team decides who gets the final say on accessing data, the leaked audio allegedly calls into question that commitment. According to BuzzFeed, eight different employees reported that they weren't granted permission to access data on their own and and described situations where they had to turn to their China-based colleagues for approval. Fourteen of the recordings allegedly involved conversations with or about Booz Allen Hamilton employees, who were reportedly brought on to assist with the data migration efforts, according to one recorded consultant. Summing up the claims during a September 2021 meeting, one member of TikTok's Trust and Safety Department allegedly admitted, quote, everything is seen in China, unquote. In another recording, one TikTok data analyst allegedly told a colleague, quote, I get my instructions from the main office in Beijing, unquote. While TikTok's efforts to move U.S. user data out of the Chinese servers do little to alleviate all the concerns voiced by national security groups, the fact that China-based employees can still allegedly access that data worries some experts. Yeah, no kidding. In an interview with BuzzFeed, Adam Siegel, the director of Digital and Cyberspace Policy Program at the Council on Foreign Relations, said such a situation could potentially result in a Chinese employee sharing that data with a Chinese intelligence agency. It's also unclear just how much of an effect the Oracle data hosting will have. According to BuzzFeed, the leaked recordings suggest a portion of U.S. users' data, including video bios and comments, will still be stored in the previous U.S.-based Virginia data center. Information from that data center, the report alleges, may still be accessible by Chinese-based ByteDance employees. So I bring this up just, well, because it was in the news, but just to remind everybody that it's easy to kind of pick on TikTok because they're a Chinese company and everyone wants to paint China as a bad guy. Uh, and, and don't get me wrong, they, <laughs> as a government, uh, they have certainly done some bad things. But, uh, you know, Facebook is also looking at all your data, too. And I'm sure in China and other countries, they don't like the fact that, you know, Facebook, a U.S.-based company, has access to data on their users as well. And so there's been all this data repatriation stuff going on where a lot of these countries are mandating that uh, the data on people, uh, on users from these multinational companies, uh, be resident, physically resident, like the hard drives that have the data are in physically located in the country in question. And, you know, and I'm not honestly sure what good that does. You know, there is the there is the Internet. It's not like Facebook can't access those servers, you know, technologically speaking, you know, from anywhere on the planet. So anyway, it, it's a it's a tough nut to crack. I'm not sure this repatriation thing is going to be the answer, but all of this just goes to show that we're collecting a crap ton of data and it's got serious security implications for, for nations, right? I mean, if you get the information on these people, it could be used for blackmail purposes for like military employees or government employees or to get, you know, intellectual property, you know, nation states can use this data in a lot of nefarious ways. So we should really just not be collecting it in the first place.
All right, moving on. This is from ThreatPost, uh, and it's about a new Microsoft scam, and I want to make sure you are aware of it. Attackers are using an oft-used and still effective lure to steal credentials to key Microsoft apps by sending emails notifying potential victims that they have a voicemail message, researchers have found. A team from Zscaler Threat Lab Z has has been monitoring a campaign since May that targets key vertical industries in the United States with, quote, malicious voicemail notification-themed emails in an attempt to steal their Office 365 and Outlook credentials, unquote, researchers said in a blog post published recently. Both the emails and the credential-stealing page appear to be coming from legitimate entities, tactics that aim to dupe victims into falling for the ploy, they said. In fact, Zscaler itself was one of the organizations targeted in the campaign, which researchers said is similar to one that uh, Threat Lab Z discovered in July 2020. This gave Threat Lab Z particular insight into how the campaign works. Other victims of the latest campaign include organizations in specific U.S. verticals, including software security, the military, security solutions providers, healthcare and pharmaceutical, and the manufacturing supply chain, researchers said. While the tactics in the campaign are far from novel, threat actors appear to be taking an if-it-ain't-broke-don't-fix-it approach to stealing credentials as a way to access corporate networks, noted one security professional. The sad fact is they still work. And as long as that's the case, attackers, attackers will still leverage them. Eric Cron, security awareness advocate for the security firm Know Before, said in an email to ThreatPost. And another quote from uh, Eric says, quote, While not a new approach, using voicemail notifications does continue to be very effective as they tend to blend into the types of notifications that are part of our daily work, unquote. However, one aspect of the campaign does set it apart from other similarly themed attacks is that it involves, quote, more research and effort as the attacks are customized for each target, unquote. He said, attackers aim to lure victims with an email that informs them that they have a new voicemail and a message that appears to be coming from the targeted organization, according to Threat Lab Z. They use an address in the from field that mimics the targeted organization's name, as well as logo branding on the mail itself to appear legitimate. The messages include an HTML attachment that, if opened, redirects the user to a credential phishing site that also appears to be uh, the real deal by mimicking Microsoft's own login page. The credential phishing site even uses Google's reCAPTCHA technique, requiring targets to prove they are not a robot by identifying objects in photos to lend more credibility to the experience. If a victim follows through on the CAPTCHA, he or she is then redirected to legitimate-looking Microsoft Office 365 sign-in page to enter credentials on a site controlled by the attackers, according to the Post. As the campaign remains active, both Threat Lab Z and Know Before's Cron recommend that organizations reiterate secure email practices with their employees to ensure that they're not giving up their credentials to attackers. As an extra precaution, users should not open attachments in emails sent from untrusted or unknown sources. Researchers noted, moreover, as a best practice in general, users should verify the URL on the address bar of the browser before entering any credentials, they said. All right, so, you know, just, just another phishing scam. Um, but I want to add to this. If you are using a password manager, password managers won't be fooled by lookalike or fake websites. So when you go to what looks like the Microsoft Office 365 sign-in page and your browser doesn't offer to fill in the credentials, that's because you're not on the real Microsoft Office 365 page. So that should be your first clue that when you're normally when you go in and say, hey, why did my browser automatically fill in, fill in my login stuff here like it always does when I go to this page? Maybe that's because you're not on the page you think you are. And then obviously the other thing we should all be doing is using two-factor authentication. 
though those codes can be fished as well, right? If you're already on a, on a page that you are trusting where you shouldn't, and it pops up a message saying, okay, I'm ready for your two-factor code, please enter it here. They could just be acting as a middleman to, you know, when you enter the code, it'll send it to the real Microsoft site behind the scenes, log you in and send you to that site. In the meantime, now they've got your credentials and access as well. All right, next up, uh, this is from Bleeping Computer, and it's about Mega, uh, which you may or may not heard of. It, back in the day, Mega was a site used to trade a lot of copyrighted material, and honestly, it probably still is. But they're a big privacy site as well, which, you know, is very, very convenient when you're trying to trade copyrighted material. But, you know, it's also they have some really good privacy respecting services like any technology it could be used for good or ill. So uh, I'm not you know, I'm not really knocking Mega, uh, but, it, you know, just given the little history there. Anyway, they recently were discovered to have some critical flaws that have since been fixed, but I wanted you to be aware of it. Uh, so let me read this article real quick from Bleeping Computer. Mega has released a security update to address a set of severe vulnerabilities that could have exposed user data, even if the data had been stored in encrypted form. Mega is a New Zealand-based cloud storage and file hosting service with over, with over 250 million registered users from over 200 countries. Users have collectively uploaded a massive 120 billion distinct files amounting to 1,000 petabytes in size. And in case you're wondering, that's peta, P-E-T-A, and that one petabyte is 1,000 terabytes. So 1,000 petabytes is 1,000 thousand terabytes. That's a lot of stuff. One of Mega's advertised features is that data is end-to-end -end encrypted, with only the user having access to the decryption key. However, researchers have shown that vulnerabilities in the encryption algorithm allowed them to access users' encrypted data. The vulnerabilities in Mega's encryption scheme were discovered by researchers at ETH Zurich in Switzerland, who reported it to the firm responsibly on March 24th, 2022. While the researchers discovered five possible attacks against user data relying upon an equal number of flaws, they all rely on stealing and deciphering an RSA key. Mega uses a system of user-controlled end-to-end encryption to protect user data even from internal access. The basis of this system is an encryption key generated from a user's regular login password. The ETH Zurich team discovered a novel way to perform a man-in-the-middle attack that can recover the RSA keys of a targeted Mega accounts. This attack relies on prime factor guessing through comparison and requires at least 512 login attempts to work. Moreover, the adversary would have to access Mega servers to carry out the attack. This is highly complicated and generally difficult for outsider threats, but it wouldn't be as challenging for rogue or unethical Mega employees. Once a targeted account's RSA key leaks the user's ciphertexts, the attacker can work backward to recover the AES, ECB of the master key in plain text and then decrypt the entire key subset. I know that was a lot of alphabet soup, but don't worry about it. It's not, it's not really that important. Eventually, the attacker can decrypt user data stored on the mega cloud, access chats in clear text form, and even upload new content to the account's repository. Mega has fixed the two vulnerabilities that can lead to user data decryption on all clients, mitigated a third one, and plans to address the remaining two of the discovered issues in upcoming updates. The fixes aren't perfect countermeasures, but they don't impact user experience and don't require users to re-encrypt their stored data, change their password, or create new keys. The cloud service provider claims that there are no signs of user accounts or data being accessed inappropriately, either from insiders or outsiders. Despite the assurances by Mega that no data was compromised, the research has effectively nullified Mega's data confidentiality assurances that differentiated them from their competition for over a decade. So again, I... <laughs> I'm actually not reading this because I want to bash on Mega. I mean, this stuff's hard to get right, and mistakes will be made. And in this case, I don't know if they if they contracted this 
security team to help them find find flaws or, or how that came about. But that's a common practice and it's something we should be doing. You should be doing, you know, third party independent security tests on a regular basis uh, so they can find things like this and disclose them privately to give you time to fix them uh, before they get out and the bad guys find out about them, at which point it's a free for all and a feeding frenzy. Because once these kind of things get out, I mean, it's it's hours before the bad guys are trying to use these things. So that's why you have to responsibly disclose these things in a private way to give the the owner a chance to fix them first, which is exactly what happened here. So it turns out that this was something that, you know, wasn't generally available to attackers from the outside. It would have required somebody on the inside with some knowledge to, to even attempt it. So probably nothing went wrong here, but it's just another cautionary tale that this stuff is tough to get right. And nothing, nothing is ever 100% secure. So Keep that in mind. And so another thing you should really consider having is, you know, defense in depth. So if you're storing something in encrypted format and it really, really needs to stay encrypted and not be discovered or not be decrypted by somebody else, encrypt it twice. You know, there's Mega doing their own encryption, which is good. And then use something like Cryptomator or something else to, you know, encrypt it again. There's nothing preventing you from doing that, uh, you know, just to make doubly sure that that stuff stays secret. All right, one more depressing story from Bleeping Computer, and this is about something called Icefall, which is I'd never heard of, I guess it's new. Um, I'll just read it. A security report has been published on a set of 56 vulnerabilities that are collectively called Icefall and affect operational technology or OT equipment used in various critical infrastructure environments. The Icefall collection has been discovered by security researchers at Four Scouts Vidir Labs, and it impacts devices from 10 vendors. The type of security flaws included allow remote code execution, compromising credentials, firmware and configuration changes, authentication bypass, and logic manipulation, which is like basically everything. Affected vendors count Honeywell, Motorola, Omron, Siemens, Emerson, JTECT, Bentley, Nevada, Phoenix Contract, Procon OS, and Yokogawa. They have been notified in a responsible disclosure coordinated by the Phoenix Contract, uh, CERT VDE, and the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Agency, or CISA. Over the past few years, the type of systems impacted by Icefall have become a more frequent target of specialized malware in Destroyer 2 and Caddy Wiper, both deployed not too long ago by Russian hackers against Ukrainian power plants. The flaws discovered by Vidir Labs concern primarily credential security, firmware manipulation, and remote code execution, while manipulating configuration and creating denial of service state account for a lower number. Forscout notes in its report that, quote, many vulnerabilities are due to the insecure by design nature of OTs, unquote. Also adding that, quote, many authentication systems are broken, unquote, which shows insufficient security controls in the implementation stage. As an example, the researchers point out that many devices use plain text credentials, weak or broken cryptography, hard-coded keys, and client-side authentication. These authentication flaws pave the way for threat actors to achieve remote code execution and denial-of-service condition or install malicious firmware images. Direct operational manipulation by issuing commands on the target devices or those behind them is another risk that the researchers highlight. Icefall impacts a wide range of devices used in numerous industrial sectors, making them highly attractive, especially to state-sponsored adversaries. Some scenarios that Forescout says could stem from threat actors leveraging Icefall include creating false alarms, changing flow set points, disrupting SCADA operations, and SCADA is an acronym for a type of industrial control system, or disabling emergency shutdown and fire safety systems. 
Affected devices are dispersed across the world. The analysts used Shodan, and I'll explain that in a minute, to scan the internet for exposed vulnerable systems and found the following top six. And I'm not going to read all the details, but there was like 3,000 devices in Italy, Germany, and Switzerland, and Sweden, and France. Another 1,300 devices in Spain, Canada, France, U.S., and Hungary. 700 devices in Italy, Germany, India, Spain, and Turkey. And it just goes on and on. There's many, many, many countries around the world uh, affected by these flaws. Notably, 74% of the vulnerable product families had been certified for their security, which reflects that these procedures are neither foolproof nor comprehensive enough. The primary security recommendation is to apply the latest firmware updates from the vendor. At this time, though, not all the mentioned vendors have released fixes for Icefall, and there are also downstream vendors that need to take action. Until a fix becomes available or can be installed, system administrators are strongly advised to segment the network and monitor traffic and device activity. Discovering and replacing vulnerable products with secure-by-design devices, as well as installing physical switches, are good methods to lower the chance of a compromise. So just circling back real quick, Shodan is a really interesting internet scanning tool. If you want to search the internet for ports being open, services being run, like certain web servers, uh, basically it's like a search engine for devices on the internet. And not just devices and getting their IP addresses, but what kind of devices they, they are. Because a lot of devices, if you know how to query them, will actually give up information about themselves. Like, hey, I'm a so-and-so device running this version of my firmware which is exactly what the bad guys want to know, because if they know they're running an old version of software and that old version has known bugs, then, hey, now I know exactly how to exploit the system. So Shodan is an interesting tool, uh, and that's what they use to, to discover all these devices out there that had these vulnerabilities, which the bad guys could do as well. But again, this is just going to show security's hard, and especially if you don't put any time or money into it, it's not going to fix itself. So... We need these companies to step up, but we also need to make sure that there are, you know, consequences if they don't do this stuff properly. In other words, regulations and regulators to monitor this. You know, a lot of these systems that these companies are using are very expensive, so they don't get replaced very often. So they tend to get old and then they go out of support and the software isn't you know, supported anymore and bug fixes aren't being generated because those companies are often making new versions of their products and they're not supporting the old ones. And by old, I mean, some of these things could be many, many years, you know, potentially, I suppose for some of these systems, decades old, because like I said, they could be very expensive and, and don't often get replaced. And security, when those things were created way back when, was an afterthought at best. So we need to upgrade at least the software on a lot of these devices. And then we need to take other precautions like segmenting the networks so that they can't, you know, talk to each other in case one of them gets infected. We don't want that to spread through the, the network. And then we need to make sure that they're protected from the broader internet. In fact, they shouldn't really be connected to the broader internet at all. Or if they are, you know, use known security technologies to access them remotely and prevent someone else from getting in that shouldn't. So next up here is an article from nine to five Google, and it's about Google password manager. The technology industry, Apple, Google, Microsoft, ultimately wants to get rid of passwords with passkeys, and we just talked about this on the show recently. Until then, the Google Password Manager is starting to offer on-device encryption so that, quote, only you can see your passwords, unquote. Today, the Google Password Manager, found at passwords.google.com and inside Chrome, the browser, offers, quote, standard password encryption, unquote, where, and this must be a quote from Google, it says, the encryption key used to access your password is safely stored in your Google account. Google then uses this key to access or decrypt your passwords. 
On-device encryption makes it so that, quote, your passwords can only be unlocked on your device using your Google password or the screen lock of an eligible device, unquote, like fingerprint, pin, or etc. Another quote from Google says, quote, no one besides you will be able to access your passwords, unquote, as Google no longer has the encryption key, which is now stored on your device in a secure way. Google says that on-device encryption cannot be removed once set up and can be enabled on multiple devices, thus doubling as a recovery option. There are instructions today for enabling on desktop, web, Android, and iOS. And there's a link in the article for this, if you're curious. Meanwhile, accessing passwords on a new device just involves signing in with secondary authentication to your Google account, while sync must be enabled in Chrome. Google places a strong emphasis on making sure you have account recovery options in place before using on-device encryption. User experience downsides includes automatic sign-in no longer working on some services and password checkup requiring manual invocation. In a support article today, Google somewhat implies that on-device encryption will be the default approach going forward. And this is a quote from this article. It says, over time, this security measure will be set up for everyone to help protect password security. The setup on-device encryption process can be initiated from either the Chrome desktop mobile browser or password manager, which is the website or built-in Android experience. However, it's not yet widely rolled out on the web, and we've only encountered it in Chrome beta. Uh, version 103 and Android. So anyway, they go on to tell you how to do it, but it sounds like it's not fully available yet. So I just kind of want to give you a heads up that if you are a Google Password Manager user, this does sound like something you're going to want to do. So, you know, look for emails from Google saying this is available and follow the instructions carefully to set it up properly to make sure that you, you know, don't accidentally lock yourself out of your own devices. Because once you follow this, Google will no longer be able to help you. But that's a good thing (laughs) because... Ideally, nobody should have access to your stuff except you, not even Google, even if you're using the Google product to do it. All right, next up, uh, this is from PC Mag, um, and it, it's titled WTF. Do I have to pay for Microsoft's Defender antivirus now? Uh, you know, spoiler, no, um, but it is confusing. So if you saw this and were also confused, I just wanted to read this real quick so you understand what's going on. Microsoft has offered antivirus protection with its operating system as far back as 1993's Microsoft Antivirus for MS-DOS. The current Microsoft Defender antivirus started life as Microsoft Anti-Spyware in 2005. It was a bumpy ride with the antivirus tool going through various names and sometimes earning below zero scores in third-party tests. But with the release of Windows 10, Microsoft Defender Antivirus became a respectable, if not glorious, malware-fighting tool. One consistent factor through all these changes, Microsoft's protection has always been free. Is that changing? Many readers were alarmed at the recent announcement of Microsoft Defender for Individuals, that's the product name, which, as Microsoft's descriptive page makes clear, is only available as part of a paid subscription to Microsoft 365 cloud-based office service. What happened to free? If every PC on the internet has antivirus protection, life gets tougher for malware writers. It's harder for viruses to spread and less lucrative to plant data-stealing trojans when most potential victims have antivirus protection. Even ransomware mills can't strong-arm as much money from victims when protection is universal. That's why Microsoft designed Defender to power up on any PC that doesn't have third-party antivirus. Near-universal antivirus provides a kind of herd immunity. The Microsoft Defender for Individuals announcement starts with a big splash. Quote, Microsoft Defender, online security simplified, easy to use online protection for you, your family, and your devices with the Microsoft Defender app now available for download with your Microsoft 365 subscription, unquote. Other mentions in the announcement don't make things any clearer. For example, quote, 
Get one centralized view to manage and monitor your security status across your computers and phones, unquote. The FAQ answer to, quote, do I need a Microsoft 365 subscription to use Microsoft Defender, unquote, is a resounding yes. And the FAQ says no to, quote, is Microsoft Defender built into the Windows operating system, unquote. I don't understand either of those answers because I think they're both wrong. Anyway, moving on. In the end, there's no actual change to Microsoft Defender antivirus on Windows. The new Microsoft Defender for Individuals strictly protects non-Windows systems. It offers antivirus protection on macOS and Android, but not iOS, and web protection on Android and iOS, but not macOS. Web protection refers to what Windows users know as smart screen filter, which I've zinged in the past for protecting only Microsoft browsers, which I guess it is now addressing. A blog post by Vasu Jakal, Microsoft's corporate VP for security, compliance, identity, and management, eventually makes it clear that this new offering strictly expands antivirus protection to platforms other than Windows. It doesn't change the status of Microsoft Defender antivirus. I should point out that the best macOS antivirus and Android security products almost certainly do a better job. Few are available for free, but then this new cross-platform Defender also isn't free. So if you're relying on Microsoft Defender antivirus for security, nothing actually changes. You can pay to extend protection to other platforms and manage them and your Windows protection from one central location. All right, I skipped around a little bit in that article, but hopefully that was, but hopefully that uh, excerpt is cogent. Anyway, so yeah, bottom line, if you're using Microsoft Defender, which I, I honestly recommend for anybody on Windows, it is free, it is quite good. Uh, there's no reason not to use it. In fact, I would certainly use that over a lot of the four pay ones in almost every situation. The Nortons and McAfee's and whatever else is out there now, the ones you have to pay for, it's a long story. I've talked about it before. They do more harm than good and they really get their tendrils all up into your operating system and they mine you for data and they actually, in a lot of cases, cause more security problems than they solve. So anyway, uh, if you're a Windows person, I keep using Microsoft Defender. I have seen no reason, honestly, to use this Microsoft Defender for individuals on Mac OS or any of these other platforms. As the article says, there are probably better better things you can use if you really want to do that. But but I just wanted to make sure that the folks out there currently using it understand that nothing's going to change uh, and it's still free for use on Windows. All right, now a short thing from The Verge about T-Mobile. T-Mobile's advertising business is offering a new way for marketers to pry into your app using habits. Ad Exchanger reports that the UnCarrier's new program is called App Insights, and it's now fully operational after spending a year in beta. The program allows third-party marketers to buy T-Mobile customer data and centers around a key piece of information that it has unique access to, what apps you use. Customer data is anonymized, and it's pooled together with others of similar interests and behaviors, so companies can't buy a specific user's app history. Still, it's creepy. The company's advertising segment touts its offering loud and clear on its website with the phrase, quote, apps speak louder than words, unquote, splashed across the top of the page. It also invites prospective clients to, quote, leverage app insights, the strongest indicator of consumer intent, unquote. That's gross. Thankfully, you can opt out. T-Mobile offers an Android and iOS app called Magenta Marketing Platform Choices that allows you to see which companies have your data and opt out entirely. You can also use App Choices, and that's a link, by the way, to a website. If you don't want to, you know, download a T-Mobile app to opt out of T-Mobile app tracking. According to AdExchanger, iOS users are excluded from the program even if they've opted in to the app tracking. 
this kind of creepy behavior from carriers isn't new and it's not likely to get better. With companies like Google and Apple allowing people to opt out of tracking more easily, marketers are looking for different ways to peek into your online habits. Wireless carriers have eagerly jumped in to provide that information and T-Mobile is only the latest to do so. So again, I will, I will just remind you that we had this blocked. We had legislation set to go into effect, I think in 2017, that would have prevented all this from happening. Back in the day when stories were coming out that maybe it was Verizon and then AT&T were caught, you know, adding these special tracking cookies to everything you did when you surfed the web through their phone using uh, cellular data and tracking you and selling that data, it came out that they were happening and they were caught red-handed and, and and they all apologized and said, oh no, okay, sorry, we'll, we'll, we'll stop doing that or we'll give you a way to opt out. And then I think that spurred this law uh, or this regulation into going into effect. And then and we changed administration in the United States and that administration was hostile to regulations and favorable to corporations and nixed it. So we were, we were set to block exactly the sorts of behavior. And you're your cell phone provider is in a very, very unique position to learn an awful lot about you. We really, really need some way to rein in this tracking because it's just gotten way out of control. All right. Uh, now an, uh, an article here from Wired about some new spyware revelations. In hearings this week, the notorious spyware vendor NSO Group told European legislators that at least five EU countries have used its powerful Pegasus surveillance malware. But as ever more comes to light about the reality of how NSO's products have been abused around the world, researchers are also working to raise awareness that the surveillance for higher industry goes far beyond one company. On Thursday, Google's Threat Analysis Group, or TAG, and Project Zero Vulnerability Analysis Team published findings about the iOS version of a spyware product attributed to the Italian developer RCS Labs. Google researchers say they detected victims of the spyware in Italy and Kazakhstan on both Android and iOS devices. Last week, the security firm Lookout published findings about the Android version of the spyware, which it calls Hermit, and also attributes to RCS Labs. Lookout notes that Italian officials used a version of the spyware during a 2019 anti-corruption probe. In addition to victims located in Italy and Kazakhstan, Lookout also found data indicating that an unidentified entity used the spyware for targeting in northeast Syria. And this is a quote from a tag security engineer. Quote, Google has been tracking the activities of commercial spyware vendors for years, and in that time, we have seen the industry rapidly expand from a few vendors to an entire ecosystem. These vendors are enabling the proliferation of dangerous hacking tools, arming governments that would not be able to develop these capabilities in-house. But there is little or no transparency into this industry. That's why it's critical to share information about these vendors and their capabilities, unquote. Tag says it currently tracks more than 30 spyware makers that offer an array of technical capabilities and levels of sophistication to government-backed clients. In their analysis of the iOS version, Google researchers found that attackers distributed the iOS spyware using a fake app meant to look like the My Vodafone app from the popular international mobile carrier. In both Android and iOS attacks, attackers may have simply tricked targets into downloading what appeared to be a messaging app by distributing a malicious link for victims to click. But in some particular dramatic cases of iOS targeting, Google found that attackers may have been working with the local ISPs to cut off a specific user's mobile data connection, send them a malicious download link over SMS, and convince them to install the fake My Vodafone app over Wi-Fi with the promise that this would restore their cell service. 
Attackers were able to distribute the malicious app because RCS Labs had registered with Apple's Enterprise Developer Program, apparently through a shell company called 3.1 Mobile SRL, to obtain a certificate that allows them to sideload apps without going through Apple's typical App Store review process. Apple tells Wired that all of the known accounts and certificates associated with the Spyware campaign have been revoked. And this is a quote from Apple. Uh, and they say, quote, enterprise certificates are meant only for internal use by a company and are not intended for general app distribution as they can be used to circumvent App Store and iOS protections. Despite the program's tight controls and limited scale, bad actors have found unauthorized ways of accessing it, for instance, by purchasing enterprise certificates on the black market, unquote. Project Zero member Ian Beer conducted a technical analysis of the exploits used in the RCS Labs iOS malware. He notes that the spyware used a total of six exploits to gain access to surveil a victim's device. While five are known and publicly circulating exploits for older iOS versions, the sixth was an unknown vulnerability at the time it was discovered. Apple patched that vulnerability in December. Google researchers note that the RCS Labs spyware reflects a broader trend in which the surveillance for higher industry combines existing hacking techniques and exploits with more novel elements to gain the upper hand. So not a lot to say about that, except maybe keep your phone updated. And by that, I don't just mean iOS, uh, but to keep the actual phone itself updated, because at some point, I think it's after five years, Apple stops putting out uh, updates for it. So, you know, Planned obsolescence, I guess, but make sure your phone is a new one and you keep that software up to date. All right, next up, this is from the markup and it's about Facebook. A tracking tool installed on many hospitals' websites has been collecting patients' sensitive health information, including details about their medical conditions, prescriptions, and doctor's appointments, and sending it to Facebook. The markup tested the website of Newsweek's top 100 hospitals in America. On 33 of them, we found the tracker called the Metapixel, sending Facebook a packet of data whenever a person clicked a button to schedule a doctor's appointment. The data is connected to an IP address, an identifier that's like a computer's mailing address and can generally be linked to a specific individual or household, creating an intimate receipt of the appointment request for Facebook. On the website of University Hospital's Cleveland Medical Center, for example, clicking the Schedule Online button on a doctor's page prompted the Metapixel to send Facebook the text of the button, the doctor's name, and the search term we used to find her, pregnancy termination. Clicking the Schedule Online Now button for a doctor on the website of Fraudhurt Hospital in Wisconsin prompted the Metapixels to send Facebook the text of the button, the doctor's name, and the condition we selected from a drop-down menu, Alzheimer's. The markup also found the Metapixel installed inside the password-protected patient portals of seven health systems. On five of those systems' pages, we documented the Pixel sending Facebook data about real patients who volunteered to participate in the Pixel Hunt Project, a collaboration between the Markup and Mozilla Rally. The project is a crowdsourced undertaking in which anyone can install Mozilla's Rally browser add-on. And if you're curious, by the way, there's a link right in this uh, article about this. In order to send the Markup data on the Metapixel as it appears on sites that they visit. The data sent to hospitals included the names of patients' medications, descriptions of their allergic reactions, and details about their upcoming doctor's appointments. Former regulators, health data security experts, and privacy advocates who reviewed the markup's findings said the hospitals in questions may have violated the Federal Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, or HIPAA. The law prohibits covered entities from, like hospitals from sharing personally identifiable health information with third parties like Facebook, except when an individual has expressly consented in advance or under certain contracts. 
Neither the hospitals nor Meta said they had any such contracts in place, and the markup found no evidence that the hospitals or Meta were otherwise obtaining patients' express consent. After reviewing the markup's findings, Frodhurt Hospital removed the Metapixel from its website, quote, out of an abundance of caution, unquote. Steve Schuf, a spokesman for the, for the hospital, wrote in a statement. As of June 15th, six other hospitals had also removed pixels from their appointment booking pages, and at least five of the seven health systems that had Metapixels installed in their patient portals had removed those pixels. The 33 hospitals the markup found sending patient appointment details to Facebook collectively reported more than 26 million patient admissions and outpatient visits in 2020, according to the most recent data available from the American Hospital Association. Our investigation was limited to just over 100 hospitals. The data sharing likely affects many more patients and institutions than we identified. Facebook itself is not subject to HIPAA, but the experts interviewed for this story expressed concerns about how the advertising giant might use the personal health data it's collecting for its own profit. The Metapixel is a snippet of code that tracks users as they navigate through a website, logging which pages they visit, which buttons they click, and certain information they enter into forms. It's one of the most prolific tracking tools on the internet present on more than 30% of the most popular websites on the web, according to the markups analysis. In exchange for installing its Pixel, Meta provides website owners analytics about the ads they've placed on Facebook and Instagram and tools to target people who've visited their website. The Metapixel sends information to Facebook via scripts running in a person's internet browser, so each data packet comes labeled with an IP address that can be used in combination with other data, with other data to identify an individual or household. HIPAA lists IP addresses as one of the 18 identifiers that, when linked to information about a person's health concerns, care or payment, can qualify the data as protected health information. In addition, if a patient is logged into Facebook when they visit a hospital's website where a Metapixel is installed, some browsers will attach third-party cookies, another tracking mechanism that we're going to talk about again here in just a minute, that allow Meta to link Pixel data to specific Facebook accounts. And this is a quote from Alan Butler, uh, the executive director of the Electronic Privacy Information Center, or EPIC. And Alan says, quote, The evil genius of Facebook's system is that they create a little piece of code that does the snooping for them, and then they just put it out into the universe and Facebook can try to claim plausible deniability. The fact that this is out there in the wild on the websites of hospitals is, is evidence of how broken the rules are, unquote. Yeah, so uh, not much more to say about that. It's a bad thing. <laughs> this tracking is bad. If you've got uBlock Origin and those kind of things installed, though, uh, that blocks that sort of tracking. So, you know, that is why we have these tools. That is, that is why, as consumers, we need to be aware of these privacy and security tools to try to block this stuff from happening. Okay, last article. And this was going to be maybe my tip of the week, but uh, I guess you can consider a bonus tip of the week. And it's something you may have heard about because there's probably been scary news stories about it, but I'm here to tell you it's a real thing. And it's something that you need to be aware of. Uh, and that is hidden surveillance cameras inside rentals like at Airbnb. So let me read this uh, snippet from this article uh, from USA Today. It's happened to me. You check into a vacation rental, get settled in and spot surveillance cameras. Even when the cameras are technically allowed, it's very alarming. Prepare to be shocked. Cameras can hide in vents, lamps, power outlets, and even unassuming objects like humidifiers and TV remote controls. You must see these cameras to believe they exist. If you're going on vacation anytime soon, it's essential to know your rights regarding surveillance cameras in your rental. 
Years ago, surveillance cameras were expensive and bulky. These days, they're affordable and easy to install and hide. Depending on the rental service, the owner is within their rights to install cameras. An Airbnb I rented a few years ago had about a dozen cameras inside the home. The owner disclosed the cameras using a tiny font at the bottom of the listing. Now, I read rental listings very carefully and ask these questions before I book. And these are, these are great questions to ask, and I recommend that you ask them as well whenever you book anything like this. One, what is the exact number of cameras and where are they located? Two, are the cameras recording? Three, what happens to those recordings after my stay? Airbnb allows security cameras or audio recorders in, quote, public spaces and common spaces, unquote. That means no bathrooms, bedrooms, or other sleeping areas. For instance, a camera or other monitoring device is not allowed if the living room has a sofa bed. Concealed and undisclosed cameras are not permitted either. VRBO allows for cameras and other surveillance devices only outside of property. The one exception, smart devices that cannot be activated remotely. Guests must be informed and given the option to deactivate them. Laws on this sticky subject vary from state to state. The Federal Video Voyeurism Act says you can't, quote, capture an image of a private area of an individual without their consent and knowingly does so under circumstances in which the, in which the individual has a reasonable expectation of privacy, unquote. It's important to note that, quote, unquote, private area refers to nudity or lesser states of dress. Local and state laws usually permit property owners to install cameras in quote-unquote public spaces. This is an important distinction. Private areas like bedrooms and bathrooms or anywhere anyone would reasonably expect privacy are off-limits. In a situation where you rent a single room of a house or apartment, it gets trickier, which makes sense, right? That one room is everything, so it's both public and private, I guess, right? There's another caveat. It's illegal to record someone for blackmail or other malicious intent. Audio recording also has much stricter rules than video. In many states, both parties must be aware that the recording is taking place. If you're renting, check the listing carefully for any mention of cameras. Whether or not you see a disclosure, it's your responsibility upon arrival to check every single room. I'll show you how. Larger cameras are easy to spot, but anyone can easily hide smaller cameras behind furniture, vents, or decorations. A simple way to spot most type of cameras is to look for the lens reflection. And this is their instructions. And honestly, I don't think this is terribly simple, but this is the process. So here you go. One, turn off the lights and slowly scan the room with a flashlight or laser pointer looking for bright reflections. Two, scan the room from multiple spots so you don't miss a camera pointed only at certain places. Three, inspect the vents and any holes or gaps in the walls or ceilings. You may also get an RF or a radio frequency detector. This gadget can pick up wireless cameras you might not see. Unfortunately, RF detectors aren't good for wired or record-only cameras. For those, you'll need to stick with the lens reflection method. If you can connect to the rental's wireless network, a free program like Wireless Network Watcher, and there's a link in this, in this article if you want to click it, shows what gadgets are connected. You might be able to spot connected cameras that way. I do this in every rental I stay in just to double-check what's connected to the network. Be aware that the owner might have put the cameras on a second network, or they could be wired or record-only types, so this is not a fail-safe option. If a home automation system controls the rental property, it's relatively easy to find cameras. Open the system controller's menu and look for anything mentioning cameras. Accordingly, you can scan the TV channels for anything suspicious. I found a lot of cameras in a vacation rental this way. So what to do if you find a camera? If you find an indoor surveillance camera that was not disclosed to you, 
pick up the phone and call the police. Tell them you have direct evidence that your landlord is spying on you inside your rental home without your knowledge or permission. Use this exact phrase. Document the situation with video and photos on your smartphone. If you're traveling with others, ask them to be witnesses once the police arrive. Remind them that they were about to be victimized too. Once you have your police report, contact their rental site. This isn't just an annoyance. It's a serious invasion of privacy. So, yeah, uh, this is super creepy. And, you know, on one way, I understand that the rental owners want to be able to remotely check in on their, you know, on their places and make sure that nothing's going on. Right. And as long as they disclose that to you and tell you where all these cameras are, and I, I would actually hope give you the option to turn them off when you're, you know, when you're there, you know, I, I think that's the compromise, but I have seen several credible articles about people who have found hidden cameras in bedrooms and bathrooms and other places where they absolutely should not be. I personally have kind of tried this technique and I haven't found any, but who knows, right? Um, if you go, I mean, just go to Amazon, for example, and just search on spy cam or hidden cam or nanny cam or something like that. And you'll see the kinds of devices that these things can be hidden in. Some of them are little like phone wall charger nuggets, alarm clocks, smoke alarms, Basically, anything that would naturally be plugged into the wall that might be in a place where you'd want to, you know, film somebody like a bedroom, like that's why, you know, a nightstand, you know, alarm clock is a perfect place for it. Or, you know, again, fire alarms, because, you know, by code, there probably has to be one in every room or at least every bedroom. A lot of times there's just tiny little pinholes on those things that contain cameras. And not even with that technique that we just talked about, I'm not sure that you would find that if there's a hole in the wall, if there's a gap in the paneling. I mean, these things are super tiny and very, very easy to hide. They're, they are not easy to find. So despite what this you know technique was, I, I, <laughs> you can't rely on it. So you know, what do you do? I, I don't know. I guess just at least be aware of this and know that when you're on rental property grounds, and I, I would guess this would have to include hotels and things too, but I think more often you'll find this in these you know vacation rental homes. Uh, just to be aware, there could be hidden cameras. Now, as I was reading this article and thinking about it, I, I kept thinking to myself, you know, how do you, how do you fix this? And it seems like an easy thing to me. It's, it's as far as regulations might be concerned. It's just require any sort of recording device, video or audio, to contain an RFID chip. This is the kind of thing that are in modern credit cards. You know, so you tap to pay or whatever. They don't require any battery to work. Uh, you have to be kind of close, but you have to be super close. And basically, if you sent out the right kind of ping, it will respond with an identifier. And, you know, so these things are super cheap. It would not add to the cost to include these things in the camera. And, and maybe you could say that to legally sell, you know, one of these cameras in the United States or wherever, that it, it must contain this little RFID chip. And it's about, it's about the size of a grain of rice. It's very small. And it's very small and very cheap now. Uh, even better would be if these things, you know, had to contain like a little Bluetooth LE, uh, Bluetooth low energy beacon and, you know, kind of broadcast that, Hey, I'm a, I'm a camera. And, you know, maybe even right now I'm recording now that would cost more money. And so you know, might be pushback on that, but it seems to me that, I mean, while there, there is, I guess the right in some situations to have cameras in places I can't imagine. And again, I'm not a lawyer, I, but it seems to me that if I'm in a place where I am asking for disclosure and, you know, let's say I'm running an app on my phone that is looking for these RFIDs for recording devices because they, you know, they should be able to identify themselves as such when I do the scan. 
that I'm asking for disclosure. And I would think that from a legal standpoint, that no matter where I am, if I ask for disclosure, you know, whoever owns these cameras would be required to disclose them. All right, now it's time for the tip of the week, the real tip of the week. Uh, and this will be a quick one. Uh, Mozilla, uh, the maker of Firefox, just released a new version of Firefox. And in that, there's a new feature. Actually, it's been around for a while, but it's now on supposedly by default, something they are calling total cookie protection or TCP. And per some of the tracking things we were already talking about, I'm not going to re-explain cookies, but basically it has a way to, an elegant way to block third-party cookie tracking. And the way this works is, Normally, when you go to a website, let's say you go to site A, and that site is using Google for or Facebook or whatever for doing some advertising uh, or one of these pixels that give you analytic uh, data. And so when you go to that website, that little piece of the quilt, of the patchwork quilt that is the website, uh, even though you went to site A.com, uh, and this is from Google.com, Google is able to drop a cookie. Uh, into your cookie jar that there's just a little repository on your computer that contains this these little data chunks and then if you go to site b.com and it also has a google part of the patchwork quilt where it's doing ads or analytics or whatever can then say hey give me all the give me all the google cookies you have and so in that way it says oh hey look I, there's a cookie in the cookie jar uh, from site a so now i know that uh, this person was also on site a and i can probably see when they were on that site and other things too, depending on how much information they store in that cookie. So uh, you could just block those third-party cookies. And in the past, that's what we have certainly done and I've recommended. But they've come up with a kind of an interesting, elegant solution to this now where built into the browser, basically what it does is it creates a separate cookie jar for every site you go to. In other words, siteA.com has a cookie jar just for it. And siteB.com has another cookie jar just for it. And never the twain shall meet, meaning that when you went to siteA.com and Google was there too, and it dropped a cookie in the cookie jar, now that is in site A's cookie jar. And when you go to site B, Google says, hey, give me all the Google cookies you got. And there's nothing there because basically the, the browser has put blinders on Google. So it can't see cookies that have been dropped by it, even though it kind of owns those cookies, even though they are Google.com cookies. Uh, it can't request them because it has put a wall up there. It's sandboxed each website. It has made a tiny little virtual cookie jar for each site. So it didn't prevent it, didn't have to prevent the dropping of the cookies. So, you know, if there was some technology that says, hey, I need to drop a cookie or you can't see this content, then you know, we're ad supported. If you don't let me, you know, drop a cookie, then they don't usually put it that way. But if you don't, you know, let me track you or, or let me show you these ads, which probably drops a cookie, you know, then you can't visit this website. So you could say, well, okay. And, and you let them do it. And so it drops the cookie, but it can't be used to track you because when it goes, when you go to other sites, they can't do that cross site tracking with these third party cookies. So it's really pretty clever, but here's the problem. So, <laughs> uh, and I probably honestly wasn't going to talk too much about this until I heard this from somebody else who's in the security and privacy area. And they checked this, they have a tool uh, a cookie forensics tool that they have built that tests that exact scenario that I just talked about. They own multiple domains and using multiple domains, they have you kind of go to these multiple sites and it drops these cookies and then lets you know, Hey, I can, I can see these third party cookies. Not only did it allow me to drop them, but I can see them. It's a cookie forensics tool. And there's a link in the show notes that you can try this yourself. And so with Firefox on the latest version, I went and tried this cookie test and failed. And I'm like, what? And I looked at my privacy settings for Firefox and I have it set to strict. 
uh, which I don't think is the default. Um, they're standard, they're strict, and there's custom. And so because some of these features had been built into Firefox by default, I thought, well, I could just now go with strict. And that way, as these new features roll out, I'll just get them. <laughs> but I was shocked to find that I failed this third-party cookie test. So I guess there's one or two things, right? Either this test is not correct, though knowing the person that created this, I would say that is not highly likely. Or what could be the case is that if you look at and parse Mozilla's press release on this, it says that it is now, quote unquote, rolling out this feature to its customers. So the way that works today and what that really could mean and what may be the reason why it's still not apparently working, even though I'm on the latest version of Firefox, is it, this is a common thing for web-based services today. And I did this when I was at Cisco. Uh, you release the software that contains the feature to everybody. So everyone has the capability of doing it, but you retain the capability of actually turning it on remotely. And so what you do is because you want, you kind of want to test this, you test it as much as you can internally, and then you put out the software so that everybody gets this new feature, but you selectively and carefully and incrementally enable that feature for a growing subset of your customers. That allows you to kind of dip your toe in the water and say, okay, let's, let's turn on 5% of our customers randomly and, and see how this is working. And if there's a problem, then you can, you know, only affect 5% of your customers, get it fixed, put out another update and then test it again. And then you kind of slowly roll it out to more and more people. And eventually when you have confidence that it's working the way you think it should be, then you turn it on for everybody. So maybe that's what's going on here. But in the meantime, what I have done, and I guess what I just, I will continue to do, and I would recommend that you do now is go to custom settings. And uh, if, when you go to your Firefox preferences and you look for the privacy settings, I guess skip right over strict and just go straight to custom and just make sure that you're blocking all third-party cookies. Uh, when I do that, I pass the test. So anyway, I, you know, I recommend that you at least check it out yourself. If you're just kind of curious on how this works, you might just check out that cookie forensics tool because it's kind of fun to see. Check it out and, you know, learn a little bit more about how these whole cookie things work. So there you have it. There's your news and your tip of the week. All right, that's going to wrap it up this week. Thank you again for tuning in. A couple quick updates before we go. Uh, my goal for 2022 was to double my audience. And I'm originally, I was just kind of tracking um, my like Twitter followers and new newsletter subscribers and podcast listeners. And podcast listeners, by the way, is kind of a moving target. It's kind of a fuzzy number. It's kind of hard to, to tell. But I just wanted to kind of report back at the year's half over. I can't believe it. We're halfway through 2022 now. And that campaign is actually going quite well. I'm up, I've almost doubled my patronage, which is great. Uh, at least the number of patrons, not quite the amount of patronage, but that's gone up. I've increased Twitter users only by about 25%. Uh, now I had a lot to begin with. So that's going to be, that was going to be one of the harder ones to, to, uh, to get up there. Uh, I've gotten almost 60% more people on the, on subscribe to my newsletter podcast listenership. Like I said, that's kind of fuzzy, but that seems to be up about uh, a third. And I'm looking a little bit at YouTube and Facebook as well, but I'm not as concerned with those, but uh, anyway, so I just wanted to kind of check in and let you know that it's going pretty well so far, and uh, I am going to continue to do it. And if you would like to help in this endeavor, tell your friends and family. Let let people know that you like this and suggest that they listen to it. Uh, I'm hoping this podcast is not like most other technical podcasts. I hope this is something that, you know, uh, regular, everyday, non-technical people can listen to and enjoy and get something from. You know, spread it on social media. You know, when you, know, when you see me post, I, you know, repost when you can or reply. All of that helps. So uh, anyway, I thought I'd just check in and let you know. I've got plenty of other promotions and other things I'm going to be doing throughout the, the rest of this year that we'll keep working on this. But 
I tell you what, word of mouth, honestly, uh, is the best there is. So uh, you guys can help as well. All right, coming up, I got some more interviews. I got three of them already recorded and in the can. Uh, four, actually. I've got the one from CrowdSec. I did get Nate Wessler from the ACLU. That was great. We're going to talk about facial recognition technology. I talked to somebody from the Center for Democracy and Technology about content moderation, which is kind of around the CSAM stuff and what's ultimately, if some of these regulations get passed, could break end-to-end encryption. So we'll talk about that. But the interview next week is the big reveal. (laughs) Will this change your life? No, but it's something I've been working for a while that I'm really excited about. If you can't tell. Uh, And finally, after being sworn to secrecy for many, many months now, uh, it's going to be made public. And so I can finally talk about it. And uh, the partner that I am working with on this project will be the subject of my interview. So that will be next week. So be sure to tune in for that one. One quick note to all my new patrons, uh, your dragon coins are going to start shipping next week. Uh, if you haven't already, make sure you look for that email from me or that note from me on Patreon uh, asking for your coin preferences. Uh, and depending on when you send those in and what your choices are and when you signed up, uh, I will be sending those out in weekly batches starting next week. And as I do that, uh, when I have shipping information, I will shoot you a link so you can track the package. And even though it's going to cost me an arm and a leg to send some of these, like to Australia, for example, I, I'm just going to do it. So uh, everyone who signed up, uh, regardless of where you were on the planet, uh, I am sending you a coin or two. All right, everybody, that is going to wrap it up. Take care, everybody. Hope you're enjoying your summer and staying safe and healthy. And until next week, as always, don't get caught with your trouble.